Good morning, everyone. Or should I say good afternoon? Because um, it's past 12. In Spain, uh, morning goes until lunchtime, which can be two or three in the afternoon. So I'm not sure whether to say good morning or good afternoon, but greetings. <laughs> it's great to be with you all. It's been really, it's been a great blessing to be with you this week and uh, meet with some of you and meet with some of the groups. So thank you for having us here. Um, we've been really blessed by your hospitality. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and powerful to change us. We thank you for the blessing that it is uh, to be your people, to follow your ways and to hear from you through your word. And so we ask that you will do just that right now, that you would speak to us through this passage by your Holy Spirit so that we might know you better, so that we might follow after you harder, so that we might be more faithful to who and what you're asking us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ruthie. Have you ever wondered why God would use fickle people like us to do his mission? It's a question that came to mind as I was looking at Luke 19 a few years back and I was reading about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches and yelling out, Hosanna! And the Pharisees respond by saying to Jesus, tell them to shut up because they're saying the wrong things about you. And Jesus responds to them and he says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It got me thinking about the topic because we're hardly necessary, Right? In fact, a stone is more faithful to what it's designed to be than any human. Humans are the only beings in creation that struggle with an identity crisis of who we are and to whom we belong. So why us? And if you were in the morning or the afternoon service last week, we pondered this idea. When so much is on the line, Jesus' reputation, sinner's salvation... Eternal consequences. Why would God entrust us with his message? It makes no sense unless we fail to consider one of the two key elements in God's missional plan. Now, the first element in God's missional plan is obvious, and we talk about it all the time when we talk about missions and missionaries and evangelism, and it's what Cornelius represents to us in this story. We have Cornelius... He's a centurion from the Italian regiment. He's a foreigner stationed in Caesarea, which is north of Samaria and up towards Galilee, but on the Mediterranean coast. And together with his whole family, he's devout, he's God-fearing, he's led them well. And God rewards his devotion by sending him an angel with a message, sent for Peter in Joppa. And so Cornelius loses no time. He gets straight on and he calls two of his servants and he calls a devout soldier. He uses Roman resources and he tells them everything in verse 8. And he sends them the 50 or the 60 kilometres to the south to bring back Peter. Now, meanwhile, Peter's on a rooftop in Joppa. From Luke 9.32, Luke briefly traced his movements from Jerusalem through Lydda and on to Joppa, and he's staying there, hosted by another guy who's called Simon, who works as a tanner, a leather worker. And Peter has a vision. It's not food poisoning, because he's waiting for lunch to be prepared. And it's probably not heat stroke, because it's probably moving towards winter at this time. 
And the word used here for trance is ecstasy, but it's probably not drug-related either uh, because it's far too purposeful for anything like that. It's a huge sheet let down by its four corners and it's filled with animals and reptiles and birds that would be unclean for any Jew to eat or even touch. And the voice says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. In the last chapter, we... We would have seen um, in that last part of the last chapter that Peter met a paralytic, paralytic, and he met a dead woman. He told them both to get up, and they did. And now the voice tells him to get up. But it's a bit ridiculous, probably a temptation of sorts, given all the opposition that he's getting from his own people, maybe a temptation from the enemy, or perhaps a test from God to show his faithfulness of being pure and clean. And Peter is respectful in his reply. He says, surely not, Lord. And perhaps that just means, sir, Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, verse 14. But then the voice comes again. It says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And in verse 17, Luke tells us that Peter's perplexed about this vision. He's wondering what it could mean. Was it real? What does it mean? Who spoke to me? And in verse 19, Peter is clear on who is speaking to him. It's the Spirit. Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up. There it is again. Get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent this. I've coordinated this, says the Spirit. And a long story short, they meet. Peter invites them to stay the night. And then they head off together with six of Peter's companions for Caesarea and Cornelius' house. And it takes them about as long to get there as it took us to get here from Spain. But they travelled a little bit less, but we didn't have to walk. And Cornelius is expecting them. He doesn't have an app on his phone to work out where they're up to or anything. He's eagerly awaiting them. And he's gathered his family. It's not just him. And he's gathered his family and close friends. And so when Peter enters the house, he finds this large gathering of people ready to hear and we just long for opportunities like this in Spain. Imagine an interested person inviting you to come to their home to speak to him or her about the gospel, about Jesus, and finding a large gathering of people who are there and they're ready to hear. It's a missional jackpot. In the sermon last week, I pointed out a parallel between Luke 9 and Acts 9. And here we find another parallel between Luke 10 and Acts 10. Now, I don't think the numbers are relevant. They were done much later. But the parallel definitely is important. Cornelius is what Luke calls a person of peace in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus sent out a mission of 72 others, he'd sent out the 12 in chapter 9, sends a mission of 72 others ahead of him into all the towns in which he was about to go on his road to Jerusalem and the cross. And he instructed them to find the man, the person, literally the son of peace, and minister to him and his household and the people that are there in both physical and spiritual ways. He would be the person that welcomes the sent one and the message into his home and into his household, Jesus said. Into the building, yes, but also into the people that dwell there. The family, the relatives, the workers, the servants, the friends, the neighbours that are welcome there too. This is how Jesus describes the son of peace. And Luke revisits this model three times in his gospel and at least twice in Acts. 
And the other gospel writers don't leave it out either. So much of our concept of evangelism in recent decades, perhaps centuries, has overlooked some of these key principles that God, that Jesus gave us in mission of investing when and where people are ready to, to hear and not just investing in the individual but also investing in their context, their family, their friends as well. We generally stop at the balance between whether it's a physical ministry, a ministry that deals with physical needs or, or spiritual needs. And sure, we live in individualistic societies, but we could be tearing families apart by going after the one and removing them from their context. Or we could be missing key opportunities that the Spirit is preparing for us to multiply our missional effectiveness. And so because Jesus had taught Peter to do it this way before his death and resurrection, Peter does it the same way afterwards. It's what he knew how to do. He doesn't pull Cornelius aside and tell him the gospel. He doesn't invite him to the church in Jerusalem by himself. He doesn't ask him to make a personal decision or put him in a discipleship course or train him in evangelism and then send him back to his friends and family. They're all there. They're ready to go. The Spirit has prepared them all and Cornelius is the spiritual door through which the message will come to them. And so Peter ministers to them all because they're all there and they're all ready Already the son of peace, Cornelius in this case, has done far more to prepare this ministry opportunity than Peter will, than the messenger will. But it's in fact God who has prepared all this. God is sovereign and he has a sovereign missional plan and he will bring about the transformation. Not even Peter's clumsy introduction will ruin this opportunity. Did you hear it there in verse 28 that was read to us? You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call you impure or unclean. It's not exactly politically correct, right? You may not want to start that way if you're given an opportunity like this. That would be okay. Why did, Pete, why did you send for me, Peter asks. And Cornelius fills him in on his experience. And then in verse 33, Cornelius gives him the floor. I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are all gathered here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Wow. It just keeps getting better. It's like those cooking shows where they say, and here's one we prepared earlier. God has set this up. It's all set up and it's all ready to go. And so Peter starts again, and this time a little better in verses 34 and 35. And you can see that this and that his, the pieces of this vision of the four-footed animals, the reptiles and birds, are starting to click into place in his mind. And he says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. <clears throat> and he goes on to give them the three-point sermon about Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And he, in verse 44, he doesn't even get to finish because it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The household is transformed. Peter and his friends are astonished and the new believers are baptised. Now you might be tempted to think that this is a story about Cornelius. And it is, but not entirely. 
We saw last week that the gospel was going to punch through certain cultural and geographical boundaries from the very beginning. That was Luke's intention. In 1.8, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And here in chapter 10, we have the first fully foreign believers. They are the first fruits and the gateway to the ends of the earth for the gospel. It's an exciting moment for the early church. And this story is primarily about the advancement of the gospel and how God drives it forward. And men are, in large part, spectators to God's work. But spectators isn't quite the right word, is it? Because we've all been commissioned. Spectators is too passive. We're not spectators, but participants to a degree in what God is doing. On the one hand, we have the sent one, Peter, in this story. And on the other hand, we have Cornelius, the person of peace, and his family. And this is how we're taught to look at mission, the sent one and the lost one. But I believe that this passage shows us that that is only half of God's intention in mission. We've seen that Peter is basically unnecessary in this story. Cornelius was devout and God-fearing. An angel visits Cornelius. Cornelius calls for Peter to come. Cornelius gathers his family and friends. Cornelius and his household receive the message before Peter even gets to finish it. Peter is responsible for none of it, yet it was God's plan to have him there and it was necessary for him to be in that household at that time. Why? Why would a sovereign God use fickle people like us to do his mission? He's already done the work before we arrive. And that's where Luke masterfully weaves the story of Peter and the details about Peter into this story. Peter's vision of unclean animals wasn't without purpose. It was very important. Any Jew would say Cornelius is the unclean one. He was a Gentile. God's people were the Jews. And he wasn't just any Gentile, he was a Roman. And do you know how much the Romans oppressed the Jews? And for centuries. But Cornelius wasn't just any Roman, he was a centurion. He represented the government and the authority. And he was responsible for a hundred other Roman soldiers. There's no doubt here that Cornelius represents the unclean one, categorically. Yet Peter is not to consider him unclean. Because it's God who declares him pure or impure. And it's God, in this case, who has made him clean. And it's a radical shift for Peter's mindset, for his worldview. And no wonder he was perplexed by the vision and the visit. But Luke doesn't leave us there. Not only does Peter need to reorient his view of clean and unclean, he who has access to God and he who doesn't or shouldn't, he's also in need of transformation. Ask that same Jew whether Peter was, was clean. Well, he was a Jew. The Jews were God's people. He may not have been the most devout or studied. He wasn't a Pharisee or a teacher of the law. But he formed part of God's people by birth. And God declared his people holy. And here Luke messes with the Jewish mindset. Because Cornelius is declared clean, holy. But do you remember where Peter was? He was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner, right? A leather workshop. So when the vision comes to Peter, he claimed cleanness before God. I've never eaten anything like that. 
but he's a Jew staying in the house of someone who works with dead animals for a living. The dead animals were ritually unclean, as well as anything that had touched them. Therefore, Simon was unclean. And Simon's house was unclean. And Peter had become unclean because he'd been staying there for quite a while, according to the end of, of chapter 9. According to Leviticus 5, <clears throat> Peter was obliged to confess his sin before a priest and offer both a sin offering and a burnt offering. It was a bloody affair. Rip the head off of one bird. Burn another in the fire. Consume it completely. Two animals had to die for that. It was no small thing, but yet he replies, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, he'd obviously made some sort of exception for the sake of the gospel, of course. But do you see his hypocrisy? <coughs> he justifies his uncleanness when it suits him. But the minute he becomes uncomfortable, he's ready to reapply the law. Acts 10 is the ta tale of two transformations. Are we really any different? We claim to be God's people, but how would we feel if God started filling our churches with believers from a Muslim background? Or worse, surfers. <laughs> we claim Jesus is our Lord, but we do what makes us happy. And as our saviour, but we tend to prize morality. We tell people we'll pray for them, but we comfort them with platitudes. We claim to have good doctrine, but the Bible says be doers of the word, not merely hearers. We say the world needs Jesus, but we, we can be reluctant to tell them. How are you doing? While the first person's purpose of mission is for the lost, the second is for the found. While Acts 10 is about the transformation of Cornelius and his household, it's also about the transformation of Peter and the early church. It's a tale of two transformations. Mission is, in fact, God's discipleship school for the believer, where he shows himself to you, where he shows you up close who he is, what he's like, how he feels, what he wants, the obstacles, the challenges, the joys, the sacrifice, and the blessings. Why does God use fickle creatures like us to do his mission? Why did Peter have to be there for God to start his work, to continue his work in Cornelius? Not for Cornelius's sake. Perhaps as Jesus' apostle to ratify that the gospel actually crossed this geographical and cultural boundary to the ends of the earth. But certainly for Peter's sake and that of the early church. Sure, Cornelius and his household are transformed. They're speaking in tongues. But God also utterly transforms Peter and the early church by the events at Cornelius's house. And so if you want to start, if you want to grow spiritually, the place to start isn't with those great old sermons or a big, thick commentary. Mission is God's discipleship school for the believer. Talk to your neighbour about Jesus. Offer a Bible study in the local community. Forgive that family member. Get up and go. Let God work. If you do that, then the Commentary and the great old sermons will do their work that they're designed to do. What allowed Peter this experience of transformation and his own transformational experience was a posture of availability and readiness. He was available and he was ready because he was in prayer. 
You will only hear the get up and go if you first get down on your knees. Jesus showed us that mission begins with prayer. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And his next word is a mandate. It's a command. Go. The prayers become the sent ones. The transformed are commissioned. And in Acts 10, it's Peter who is praying and the Spirit says, get up and go. A life of prayer makes us available for God to use. And it makes us available for God to transform. And we'll have all kinds of ideas about God and about people that God wants to correct. Some may be errors, but more likely our image of God and his character is just way too small. It's way too limiting, way too restrictive to incite genuine praise and joy in us or repentance in those around us. Do you want more of God? Are you available for transformation? Do you want your joy of God to increase? Do you want to see him more clearly, sense him more closely, work with him more harmoniously, relate with him more intimately? Because it's all available. He's infinitely good and infinitely enjoyable. And so don't let your small picture of God, your limitations or your restrictions, rob you of that joy. Or rob others of that opportunity. That's not our place. And while the specifics of your mission might be different to mine, God's intention to grow us is common to both of us. Peter was in Joppa. You're in Shalhaba. We're in Gijon. But this is God's mission. And you're available to be used and you're available to be changed, to be transformed to the degree that you found in prayer. I don't say that as one who's made it. Many of you will be able to teach me much more than I can teach you on prayer. But this is what God's inviting us to. If you don't yet pray, you're going to want to start. Get a book. Get a diary. Get whatever you need to do. Set your alarm. Do whatever you need to because your return on that investment is infinite and it's eternal. And maybe in the process... God will gift you the opportunity, a similar opportunity to what Peter had with Cornelius. To get up, to go, and to grow. Let's pray. Father, we long for those opportunities to meet with people like Cornelius and his household. To be able to be your witnesses in our place and the place that you put us. So, Lord, we ask that you would give those to us. And, Lord, we ask, too, that you would grow us through those opportunities, that you would put us in places where you stretch us and you show us what you are like and what you feel, how it is to be rejected, how it is for you to be accepted by these people that live around us, that are neighbours, that are parts of different communities with us. Oh God, would you give this church an abundance of opportunities to experience you in that way, to grow in that way, and to invite others to do the same. Thank you that we can trust you for that, and thank you that we can know you intimately. Thank you that you are so close to be knowable. But thank you too that we can never plumb the depths 
of your knowledge entirely because you're also so great and so infinite and so fantastic. Help us to know and see you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.